I am Dr. Tasha Browning, a trauma therapist, and this is The Trauma Perspective. In this podcast, we will discuss various topics surrounding mental health, trauma work, trauma healing, and explore the lived experiences of trauma survivors. Be warned, trauma is a dirty topic. It is thick with hurt and it reveals some of the ugliest sides of human existence. These discussions may not be appropriate for all listeners. So take a breath, stay present, and let's discuss the trauma perspective. So welcome back to The Trauma Perspective. And with this particular episode, I'm going to have to give an additional trigger warning. This is adult content, and this is very sensitive topics uh, about sexual uh, health, sexual trauma, sexual violence. And so, of course, this would not be suitable for all audiences, but also this may be a little bit triggering for some of our audience members. So that is just a warning um, for you to be prepared for what we will be talking about today. Bryn Deary is back and she is going to join us for this conversation. Um, I'm really excited about this. I think at the end of our last podcast, we've gotten so many requests to have her back, but then also this particular topic came up and um, I thought that, of course, Um, She's a perfect fit for helping us explore this a little bit more. And this is the idea of kink being a way uh, and a path to sexual healing and um, exploration of healing sexual trauma. But uh, Bryn, you got to update us because there's been a few changes um, since the last time you were here. Yeah. Hi. Thanks for having me back. Um, My name is Bryn Deary. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist. I'm a certified sex addiction therapist. Uh, I am an autism spectrum disorder clinical specialist, a certified clinical trauma professional, and a master's level uh, certified addiction professional. So uh, Bryn, that just means that Bryn is very smart. She has all of the alphabets and uh, all of the all of the all of the all of the money and the degrees and and the credentialing to to discuss this topic. So, um, you know, I think um, there's always been an area of working with healing trauma that I think we've neglected when we talk about um, re-experiencing um, different traumas, uh, uh, experiencing them in our bodies, embodiment and all that. And I think that is the area of not going into what it takes to heal from sexual trauma more thoroughly than just talking about somatic experiencing, um, which is used a lot um, in uh, getting back into our bodies when we're working with healing trauma. So this area of kink um, is not so straightforward, though, because Kink is a very general, very broad term to a lot of different ways in which people explore themselves, right? And and have different sexual practices. So, how do you define what kink is, Bren? Like, what 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 should we throw under this category? So, I think of kink very similarly in the way you know it's more of an umbrella term. So, uh, fetish basically is anything that is not immediately having to do with physical sex being sexualized. So um, the inclusion of things that 
maybe don't have immediate sexual connotations. And this could be anything from food to certain articles of clothing. Um, the, the best scale that I've heard described is, you know, if you're looking at it as like a, a scale of one to 10, um, somebody with a foot fetish at a one might like a certain shape foot or maybe a certain color toenail polish on the foot and somebody to 10, they may not even need a foot anymore. They'll just take a shoe. Um, and obviously we've sexualized shoes because they've been on the feet of attractive people, but a shoe in and of itself has, you know, basically nothing to do with sex as far as it's creation and its purpose. So zooming out, I think of kink as anything where people are finding ways to access sexuality that isn't immediately biological or culturally ordained. So are we safe in saying that for the purposes of this episode, um, we're going to classify kink as sort of non-traditional, non-heterosexual or um, monogamous type intercourse, non um normative type sex? Is that how we want to classify it? So I would struggle with that because obviously there are cishet couples that work with kink. Um, mm -hmm. and there are people with traditional monogamy that work with kink. So, um, I'd say it's even a wider umbrella than that. It's not even specific to non-traditional sexual relationships. Anybody, I mean, you can use kink by yourself masturbating. So rather than thinking of it in terms of non-traditional sex, I would think of it in terms of, um, finding sexual arousal from something that is not immediately sexual. So obviously your sex partner, regardless of their presentation, um, is still immediately sexual because they're your sex partner. But I would think of kink as something where you are sexualizing something that is not traditionally considered sexual. Okay, good. So I think we've opened up the umbrella wide enough to now talk about kink as being something maybe taboo? Do we classify this as a taboo? Absolutely. Okay. Why do we classify this as a taboo in our sexual health and sexual well-being? For a variety of reasons. Um, I think looking at like kink throughout history, it gives us an idea. So <laughs> I'm going to go way back here to ancient Rome. Uh, Lupercalia was uh, a, basically it's the earliest Valentine's Day. I think it actually way predates Valentine's Day and it's, you know, I think it's February 15th or something, but this is ancient Rome where um, it was a fertility festival where they would go to uh, the cave, I think it's called Lupercal or something, but the cave is called Lupercal and this is the, supposedly the place where um, Remus and Romulus, um, you know, nursed from a wolf. And so they would go there and they would sacrifice a goat and then they would cut the goat skin into strips and then beat women with these strips of goat skin. And that was supposed to bring fertility or be a blessing or something. So this idea of, you know, sacrifice and blood and, and whipping goes as far back as, and fertility, the combination. So I would call that historically one of the earliest kinks where we've now sexualized beating, um, you know, up through the 1800s where John Willie's Bizarre Magazine where he was the first to publish um, some of the BDSM stuff. And I think that was the late 1800s. That was right around the Gibson girl era because he worked a lot with wasp waste um, stuff as well. What, were we, what was the question? <laughs> I'm lost in the history. <laughs> we classify kink as taboo. and I. Oh, yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. Why is yeah. it taboo? So anything from... 
Um, I think it's very, you know, to take a sort of feminist perspective, I think anything that women can find pleasurable without a penis is threatening to the patriarchy. Um, I also think that, um, you know, from the, from the other perspective, I think that men are held to some pretty unrealistic uh, sexual standards. And, you know, God forbid they like something other than traditional heterosexual penetrative vaginal sex with a woman. So this idea of, you know, what each gender is supposed to be and what they're supposed to like, I think kink or sexualizing things that aren't traditionally thought of as sexual is threatening to um, religious institutions, the Institute of Marriage, anything. I mean, if you sort of think about all of the traditional sexual standards coming from a place of procreation, kink is inherently non-procreative because you're involving something that isn't about you know, having a traditional orgasm that produces a baby. Yeah. That the goal isn't for procreation. Exactly. Yes, the goal is more for what? Pleasure and exploration. Sure. Yeah. And then, of course, anything other than that has been shamed mm-hmm. uh, throughout history, especially in, like, modern Judeo-Christian institutions. Um, there's a lot of shame associated with that, which is ironic, of course, because now you're talking about the monks flagellating themselves. I mean, there, there really is a long history of um, pain associated with either sexual abstinence or repression or sexuality itself. Yeah. But it's pretty hard to talk about any kind of sexualization outside of procreation without it being stigmatized. Mm -hmm. But I think the one thing that kink does give people um, is that it gives them choice and control. Now, I say that to say that we need to distinguish between Um, kink from a trauma-informed perspective where there's lots of rules and boundaries and understanding and communication between um, how it's engaged in, but also what sexual trauma and violence looks like. And that is not necessarily um, what kink looks like from a trauma-informed perspective. Absolutely. And I would go even farther than that to say that if it is not trauma-informed, if it is not rife with consent and consent language, I wouldn't even call it kink. I would just call it sexual abuse. So the way that I conceptualize of kink, and I know that a lot of people in the kink community do, it's not kink if there are not two consenting, enthusiastically willing, or you know, or more participants. It's it's just sexual abuse. Why do you think people confuse the two? Or are we just confusing the two because society-wise, uh, we like to classify things that are taboo as being um, the negative, the no? Well, I mean, I think certainly things that are taboo is the negative, the no, for sure. But also, you know, we'd be remiss to ignore the fact that for a lot of people, some of their kinks look the same from the outside, objectively, as sexual abuse and assault. So there are people who will sexualize things that are a sexual trauma for other people. Yes. Okay. And so as we distinguish between the different elements, I think um, there's some there's some common denominators that come up in the way in which kink can um, transform people's trauma healing the same way some more traditional therapies like somatic experiencing can. And that is in the way that there is lots of predictability. There's lots of negotiation. Um, This sometimes can rewire how the trauma is presented or how it's perceived. We have um, the ideas of safety are reestablished for people. And then there's always this before conversation and this aftercare and repair type of situation that can take place um, in a lot of kink 
uh, between two people, of course, probably, you know, on your own too. But um, I think, you know, maybe we need to explain or maybe um, you can give us some background on like, what are those parameters and what that looks like when you approach kink in the form of a sexual healing practice? I think the biggest thing about it that's healing is is the fact that consent and communication is such a huge piece of it and that the presupposition going into any kind of kink relationship is that both people are here for pleasure. And so the moment it stops being pleasurable for any party involved, um, again, is when it stops being a consenting sexual act and it's, and therefore it stops being kink um, and, and turns into abuse, whether it's inadvertently or, you know, deliberately. So even people who have not lived through horrifying sexual traumas, um, those of us who grew up in the States or in the Western world at all, because sex has been so tabooified, people really haven't talked about consent. So even people who haven't experienced some of the harsher realities of sexual abuse, um, we were never really taught about consent and consent language, especially those of us over a certain age. You know, I, I came of age in the 90s. I grew up in the 80s. Nobody talked about consent. Um, it, it wasn't sexy or it was weird or it'd be funny. Like, you know, well, do you consent to this? Oh, um, and it was kind of a joke in that sense. So to be able to rewire our brains around consent and have it be sexy, um, and have it be, a, a new way of training us to sexualize consent. And I think that's really healthy in and of itself. So you know, whether you're healing from a pre-existing trauma or just making sexuality healthier for yourself and your partners, getting in the habit of talking about consent and limitations, communicating about what we want, about what we don't want, coming up with safety language and safety words and being really clear about the parameters of what we're willing to engage in. Um, that's just healthy practice for all sexuality, regardless of whether or not it's kink. So because it sort of started in the kink community, it's ironic, of course, because, you know, kink is more, um, because it's more taboo, it required some of that language to happen sooner than, you know, sort of traditional heteronormative penetrative sex, because it's thought of as so scary. So even people who aren't necessarily into kink themselves can still learn a lot from looking at the consent and communication process from kink. Why do people have such a hard time with engaging in consent practices? Um, I think that's a great question. And I think a big part of that has to do with the fact that women being sexual has been stigmatized for so long. And I would also argue that this is part of the reason why the rape fantasy for women is as common as it is. And I want to be very clear. Women do not fantasize about actually being raped. An actual rape is completely different. The rape fantasy is about um, a man being, or a woman or anybody, being so overcome with desire for someone that they simply must have them. And I think the reason a lot of women, or I shouldn't even say women, people have leaned into um, that idea, um, I guess I could say women, because women have also traditionally been uh, stigmatized for wanting sex. It's a way for a woman to feel sexually validated without feeling like a quote-unquote slut because she hasn't said yes. 
So this idea of someone being so overcome with desire for her where she can get her sexual needs met, but also isn't being slutified because she hasn't agreed to it. He just wanted her so bad. So I think consenting, this is why, you know, historically, even pop culturally, you know, that, that sort of joke, it's not, obviously it's not a joke anymore because thank God the culture has shifted, but it used to be like, you know, oh, I got drunk so that I could have sex and blame it on the alcohol. This idea of, oh, I wouldn't have done that if I wasn't messed up. And of course that raises a whole other set of issues for consent, but um, I'd be lying if I said I never did that on some level where I, in my mind, I knew I was going to say yes, but if you get a little tipsy, then you don't have to feel like such a quote unquote slut or a dirty girl because, oh, I, you know, I just was lightheaded and I didn't know what was happening. So I think this idea of being able to preserve some illusion of purity um, lends to guilt and shame around active consent for women. Um, and I also think it's, you know, the way that we were raised or the way that sexuality has been portrayed in, in media up until very recently, it just wasn't sexy. Um, it's supposed to be this passionate overtaking things where clothes come off and we just don't know what happened. And this idea of having a very bureaucratic discussion beforehand about what's going to take place. Um, I think for a lot of people, it takes some of the mystery out. It takes some of the sexiness out, um, which is again, why I like taking a cue from kink because, if you ever, you know, see people in the waiting room of a dungeon um, signing consent papers, this is part of their foreplay. Um, this is exciting for them where they're talking about what they can do, what they can't do. And the music is there and the lighting is right and the smells and the sounds are right. And they know what's happening. And they get to the point where they'll actually start associating some of the consent papers with the sex that's about to take place for them. So that's, you know, proof that and that and the existence of kink in and of itself, that we can sexualize things that we don't traditionally think of as being sexual, including consent. It does. You know, I did read a study um, out of the Journal of Sexuality. I think it was back in 2013. And um, just a side note, all of our uh, references for this podcast and any information in this podcast, we do include it in the um episode notes on the Healing Body Method website. But I was reading a article that talked about how um, people who engage in practices of kink actually rank higher in their sexual mental health and also in some of their um, sexual self-esteem and the habits associated with that. Their um, like the way that they thought about their happiness, their well-being was actually rated higher than people who considered themselves uh, to be in sort of um, lack of a, like in quotation marks, normal sexual relationships. Sure. Um, they, the other, the other crowd seemed to be more um, stated. They were happier and healthier mental health wise. And I'm wondering if that has to go with, this extra line of communication that they're willing to engage in versus uh, people who typically fall into these more traditional ways in which they engage in, engage in sexual practices in terms of like just getting in the mood and doing it versus having these plans and these conversations about it. Yeah, I think that's probably definitely a component. I also think there's more to it than that. So certainly the communication and talking about it um, I also think that um, everybody has some sexual proclivities um, that bring them some sort of shame. I just think the kink community has worked with that shame and worked with those proclivities and found a way 
to um, not internally stigmatize it anymore. And I think um, it's not to say that everybody is kinking, but I think that everybody has some associations um, either from early sexual experiences or maybe that one porn they accidentally watched and now they can't stop thinking about. But um, there's a lot of shame surrounding sexuality. And I think people who have moved forward in kink communities have been forced to confront that shame and maybe don't feel as shameful about it. I also think that kink is very freeing in the sense that unlike traditional, you know, heteronormative penetrative sex, um, or I guess any sex, it wouldn't even have to be heteronormative, but any kind of traditional penetrative sex, um, it very much, the goal is orgasm. The goal is performance, it's orgasm, it's pleasing the other person by either staying hard or throwing your head back and you know what I mean? Like it's this idea of if they don't achieve an orgasm, you haven't been a good lover. And I think that that goal-oriented, you know, almost transactional uh, way of looking at sex can be a lot of pressure and it can lead to a lot of insecurities if your partner isn't able to achieve orgasm or isn't able to maintain an erection or doesn't have a lot of natural lubrication or maybe doesn't even want to have an orgasm. So we look at that as a form of failure and kink looks at the reality that there is so much more to sex than, you know, tab A and slot B and having an orgasm. So what constitutes uh, success, what constitutes satisfaction, what constitutes pleasure is much more open-ended and dynamic than um, the sort of traditional, did you come, did you, you know, sort of way of looking at a sexual encounter. So, you know, this is where you find a lot of people with disabilities, people who have different ideas of what sexuality is. And again, people with sexual traumas who can sexualize things that aren't particularly sexual. So, um, you know, a the way that a paraplegic has sex might be different than the way um, a traditionally able-bodied person has sex. And being able to sexualize, um, you know, certain smells or warm water or being able to eroticize ear play or something. I mean, what we define as sex has been so traditionally prescribed for so long that now we are opening the doors to redefining what sex is. And when it is not completely surrounding traditional orgasm, um, I think that means that people can have better self-esteem because they can now think of themselves as good lovers or as sexually viable partners, even if they aren't able to achieve erection or have an orgasm. I think this idea of shame is where um, kink really has taken hold in a way that there are some really good things we can pull from this in terms of how we look at healing trauma, sexually, uh, especially sexual trauma, that goes into not just a somatic um, perspective, but also this somatic and relational type healing that kink can provide um, for people. Because it does look different, and it's going to look different on everyone. And then it, there's so much variety in what people can explore as they take on those two elements to working um, on their healing um, and then, you know, when we explore, we, we, we create these new narratives about ourselves, which inform, uh, create these new brain pathways and help us return to our bodies and heal from our bodies. So I think um, with, with understanding that there are some 
some pretty particular elements that we can pull from kink that I think are important to mention in how we heal for tra- from trauma um, that kind of link to more traditional ways in, pe- in ways people use um, somatic work to heal from trauma. The first thing is um, experiencing a very safe and predictable container in terms of um, allowing for a safe container where things are done in a safe place with safe people. It allows predictability, which uh, of course calms and then heals the nervous system. We also, in that safe container, we already know and can say what is okay and what is not okay. What What is, how is safety? Talk about safety, Bryn, when it comes to this idea of kink. So safety obviously means different things to different people, but it it obviously starts with physical safety, but it certainly doesn't end there. So with regards to physical safety, um, it is, again, understanding consent. It's being clear about the tools and the objects you are consenting to be using. It's the amount of pressure and sensation you're consenting to use. Um, even the cleanliness of the objects being used um, you know, there's the traditional STIs, um, you know, uh, breath play, blood play, and the the sort of safety around all of the physical stuff. But safety is also um, a, you know, it's a state of mind. It's, it's this idea of, am I safe here? Is this a safe space for me? So feeling safe is absolutely imperative um, to having a positive sexual experience. And that may sound counterintuitive when the kink isn't about feeling safe, but this goes back to what I was saying about the rape fantasy. Um, it's in the fantasy, you are being raped, but you have consented to being raped. And that's what makes it It a fantasy. Exactly. Yes, Yes. exactly. So it was, and again, even the fantasy. So, you know, if you're actually following through with it, it's absolutely been planned. It's been, you've already consented to the event and now the event is looking to mimic a rape. But even if it never manifests physically, the rape fantasy isn't about um, somebody else's pleasure and you're being used and humiliated and and painful for most people. It obviously can be if that's your thing. But for most people, it's about feeling wanted. It's about feeling validated. And these are not experiences that actual rape victims report. So the fantasy of the rape is completely different than the reality of the rape. And in that sense, um, a planned rape fantasy experience would be a safe place in the sense that an actual rape would not. So creating a safe space doesn't necessarily mean, you know, you won't have a bruise or you won't um, experience physical pain or physical restraint. It means that these things are happening on terms that you've agreed to and that you are psychologically and physically comfortable with everything that is taking place. The next area um, that is a big connection to to the somatic and relational healing is that um, kink can complete a stress response cycle. So, what happens with trauma is uh, when we experience it, of course, it gets it gets uh, imprinted in our bodies, and that particular area gets imprinted. That traumatic stress energy gets stuck; it gets pent up, and um, it is not released. And so, as you create these different explorations in your body, um, especially if you're exploring your body in this very pleasurable type of sexual way, you're making these new connections to that traumatic stress, finding it in your body, and you're able to move through it and have expressions of it that allow 
allow you to release what is no longer serving you, basically, while also making a connection to another person, but also to a larger community. Because people who practice kink know that this is, you know, there's a big community that goes with this idea that there's other people who may explore um, who like the same types of kink that you do. There's usually a connection to it not just being me in terms of um, how this is being expressed. The stress response cycle. Is that a part of how you view kink and healing? It's it's a component of it. It's I wouldn't say that it's that for everybody. There are people that don't have sexual trauma that like kink, but I think for people... Um, and that's a whole intense topic. You know, mm-hmm. people who have experienced sexual violence, um, I think this is where you do have a lot of shame in the kink community or what I would call the pre-kink community, people who have the impulse to seek out, you know, what we would traditionally call re-traumatization um, or trauma repetition yes, to, yeah, to, mm-hmm. to close out that cycle, like you said. And I think there's a lot of shame there because people don't understand um, why they would want this bad thing that happened to them. And then they started thinking, well, maybe I wanted it the first time and maybe it's my fault that it happened because I like it and maybe they knew I liked it and maybe... I don't know. So it leads down this sort of rabbit hole. But if you look at it from the biological perspective, like you just said, it's closing a loop. And we know that trauma survivors will do trauma repetition and they will find themselves in similar situations because they are subconsciously you know, trying to change the ending. They're trying to change the outcome. This is why people will have the same dream also. It's it's your brain trying to find a way of, you know, getting out of that sort of um, st- what I would call a state of, um, what's that term? It's going to, uh, suspended animation. There's a, there's a piece of you that sort of remains locked in time um, when that loop hasn't closed. And you know, that, that part of you is still going through that until you find a way out. It's almost like being stuck in a maze of mirrors. I don't know how else to describe it. But, you know, in some ways, the only way out is how you went in. So if you got into that maze through sexual violence, um, using sexual violence to access that part of you that's stuck in suspended animation, it almost seems intuitive. Now, of course, it can be re-traumatizing if it's not done properly. Um, you know, and I guess I would say that in a, in a bad way, you know, I think to a certain degree, people use the re-traumatization to help themselves out of that loop, but, um, it can also be problematic if it's not done properly or if it's not done safely. Absolutely. But in these terms, we are talking about that idea of the connection to a larger person and to a larger community. And that connection to a larger community means that if you are practicing probably this particular type of kink, that there are already associations with boundaries and the way in which things are done and parameters that are typically practiced maybe within the context of like that particular style or what what it is that you've agreed upon. Sure. And in that sense, I would say that, you know, you take any marginalized group and you can often find a, a system or um, a, a, a mini culture or a family um, because, you know, if, especially looking at the LGBTQ community um, where you actually have a community because you've had to. Um, same thing with the kink community. There are things already in place. There are people who've already done a lot of the hard work and paved um, through some of the, you know, ironing out the kinks, as it were. So knowing that there's already a group of people there, there's already a system in place, there's already um, 
you know, the wheel has been invented. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. You can just find people who've discovered it before you have. And I think that that brings a lot of safety as well. So this next element is when we connect with ourselves. And I think uh, maybe you would agree that um, in the sexual sense, these internal sensations is such a deep connection in terms of having to be aware of how our bodies are feeling, um, conscious of, of our partners. If we are experiencing these, these type of situations with a partner, um, there's a deeper level of that felt sense that comes with um, sexual activity and sexual pleasure that is very embodying. And so practicing that level of embodiment um, helps us not only change the narratives about ourselves, but maybe some of the relationships that we are in, because then it becomes safe um, that uh, we are we are known for who we are. We choose what happens with our bodies. We set the boundaries with our bodies. We also can engage in feeling our felt sense in ourselves in a way that allows us to want to be touched and allows us to want to be present in our bodies. And that type of connection becomes then a healing experience. Can you connect with your, with your felt sense in this healing way under kink and still move through all those different associations that sometimes come up from trauma? Yeah, I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. And again, that's the beauty of kink is that you can start with something that is not directly related to sexuality um, or, or your sexual trauma. So, you know, if if you have experienced traditional rape, starting with, um, you know, feathers or or teasing, might be something where maybe now you're restrained, but you are, on the contrary, not only are you not being forced to do something, you're not being allowed to do something you actually may want to do. And that can be healing as well. So the last element is this experience of a safe attunement. And attunement is the idea and and, and how we um, attach to new experiences and new people, new sensations, new emotions, and uh, coming with that feeling of safety in the attunement. And so the thing with kink, you know, when we're healing from um, a trauma is that um, we explore this level of attunement that doesn't leave you feeling abandoned or uncared for. There's always a healthy dynamic of a closeness and even maybe a play where at the end of the experience, usually you are closer to each other. Um, You have more knowledge about each other and no one has harmed or manipulated you in a way that one would make you feel unsafe or maybe leaves you um, sort of in a worse state than how you came in. Um, And so then in that way, we get to reattune ourselves to how we experience people and maybe build a new safety and new trust in what it is to be vulnerable with someone. Yeah. And it's not just how we experience people. It's how we experience pain also. So I think, so I think differentiating between hurt and harm is really important. Um, You know, if you're looking at human relationships, for example, if you're going to have a relationship with a human being that has any depth, you are going to get hurt. There, there's no way around that. Your feelings are going to get hurt. There's going to be a miscommunication. You might feel rejected. That's just a component of human interaction and being a person. Harm should be avoided. Hurt cannot be avoided. Harm should be avoided. So you can experience 
pain, emotional, physical, um, without actually being harmed. And then of course you can experience harm without being hurt. You might not even realize it. So, um, I think often those two words are, you know, used interchangeably, but for the sake of this conversation, they're, they're really not. So being able to experience hurt without being harmed can be really liberating. And I think differentiating between, um, intense sort of traditionally unpleasant sensations, um, and dangerous situations is also very empowering. So we pull all these things into our treatment of trauma. We pull all these things into our insight and experience in the therapy office with working with people or working in groups, you know, such as doing retreats. And I'm wondering, do you have any insight or any stories or anything that comes to mind where you've used um, or, or this particular topic has come up? Oh, absolutely. Um, I worked at an inpatient trauma treatment facility for years, and this is one of the things I talked about a lot in our sexuality groups just by virtue of how frequently it came up. And that's, I mean, this is this explains why I've gone as deeply into this topic as I have, purely from client interest. Um, and it got to the point to where I was printing out articles on kink and trauma recovery and just handing them out like candy at the end of groups because people were so interested. The amount of uh, sexual trauma survivors who not only wanted to engage in kink but had an absurd amount of shame surrounding it um, really brought, really highlighted for me how important this topic is. And sometimes it's as simple as giving people permission to get off on whatever gets them off, even if it feels like it's shameful. So you've got a lot of people who are turned on by some of their sexual uh, abuses. They're turned on by some of their perpetrators. They masturbate to some of their perpetrators. They want to engage in activities that recreate some of the trauma they've experienced, um, or they're horrified by some of their own fantasies and they carry so much shame with it. And again, hurt and harm, another distinguishing thing is fantasy and reality. And obviously, you know, there are cases and, you know, we're sort of looking at traditional sexual models where fantasy can be brought into reality, but it, it really isn't always that way. And as long as something is happening in your mind, it's not happening in real life. And, you know, you can role play something that might not be appropriate in real life and not feel shame about it because people aren't getting hurt. So if you're into age play, which is hugely triggering for people, especially um, victims of childhood sexual abuse, age play with consenting adults is completely different than victimizing an actual child. So as difficult as it might be you know, to fathom why anybody would want to do that, especially people who've been abused, like we were saying before, it's using the, the way that we got in is the way that we're getting out. And if that is something that arouses you, if that is something that turns you on, finding a safe, legal, loving way to access that trauma, and I mean loving to yourself, you don't necessarily have to love your sex partner, but loving, really creating a safe space for yourself to where this is about your pleasure and your freedom. And, you know, it's bad enough to have to experience sexual trauma without then feeling shame about how it's affected your sexual template. So if you were, you know, unlucky enough to experience sexual trauma, 
um, but now some component of it is arousing for you. The way I see it, you know, take it and run. Do, do what you got to do. Look at it as an inadvertent, you know, gift if that's what you need to do. But there isn't anything wrong with you, quote unquote, if your assault or if somebody else's assault turns you on, provided you aren't actually hurting anybody. Um, people have so much shame about what turns them on that I think if we reduce some of that shame, we'd also reduce victimization because people might give themselves permission to explore things um, in a safe, adult, consenting, healthy way. I think um, the the experiences you have in that realm and inpatient, I think coming in as a therapist um, may have probably in more than one way saved people's lives, saved um, their identity in more than one way by allowing them to be that open with you in terms of what they needed to share about their trauma and what they needed to heal from. Um, I, you know, in these eras of um, working with trauma and sexual healing, I think most of my experiences have come in the form of marriage and family therapy when I used to do that in couples counseling. But I think the biggest challenges I ever faced was a couple who um, the husband wanted to start to engage in some BDSM. And the wife was interested in exploring, but the way in which he um, was presenting it and some of the things he wanted to do and the rules that he wanted to have um, did not fall in lines of, in my understanding at that time with what consent looked like and what and how that was staged and brought up. So that was a very difficult type of um, marriage counseling interaction to, to work through when you have someone trying to convince someone else of what something is and how it's defined when that person is ultimately in front of you. You you can definitely tell they're not comfortable with it. Um that they're just because they say they're interested in the topic and they're interested in ex exploring it does not necessarily give consent. It is just an interest at that point and having to work a couple through those things um, when more so there is pressure and this um, big umbrella of what a duty is in a marriage to kind of break through um, and do counseling with. And uh, at the end of that situation, um, just to give you like an, an overview, like it didn't end well, but that's a whole nother, you know, conversation. Um, but yeah, so that was, uh, you know, I was one of my second experiences, I think, um, with approaching this topic on like how you work with that, but also sexual trauma, um, with this, because the wife did have sexual trauma in her past, which is the other, the reason in which she needed some clear parameters and how, all of this was going to be explored. And, and, and that did not work out because, you know, of course her husband was not willing to um, explore those on, on her, on her terms. Well, and again, this is where you have some gray area in the kink community. And I think it's really important to state that generally speaking, um, for lack of a better word, the kink community is kind of adorable. Um, I don't know if you've ever watched that. I want to say it's vice, but there's like a special on pony play that got a lot of, air time. Um, generally speaking, it's, you know, it tends to be a very neurodiverse population. It tends to be, um, you know, kind of a Ren Faire drama geek uh, population. 
Um, and they're, they tend to be sweethearts and they tend to be really kind, nice people. But anywhere, anywhere that you invite an open exploration of power dynamics, you are going to find predators, period. So while I can say that by and large, the kink community is, I would say, even safer than the population at large, um, there are people out there calling themselves doms and they're not doms, they're rapists. And they're calling themselves, like, you know, you're just a rapist in pleather. Like the fact that you have a whip in your hand and you've tied someone up before hurting them doesn't make you a dom. Um, you might be dressed like a dom, but um, by the time you have taken somebody's consent or you're engaging in something they haven't consented to, again, it ceases to be kink. It ceases to be um, that safe environment. So if we had to sum this up and if we had to um, offer a, a good closing of the conversation and, and if you wanted to express something that you want to make sure is known about how kink can be used to heal sexual trauma, what is the one point you want to drive home so that people know how to explore this topic? Whatever it is that turns you on is really, really, really okay. And you don't have to be ashamed of it provided you are exploring it in a way that doesn't victimize other people. That's it. So even if it's your own victimization that turns you on, even if it's something that you morally find horrifying or abhorrent, um, our sexuality and our feelings often are irrational. They don't make sense. They don't align with what we think of as being our moral codes. Um, and that can be kind of the fun of it. Um, and exploring those things in a safe way and giving it permission to be what it is um, and using that as an opportunity to explore um, creating a new ending to your trauma or expanding your uh, definition of what it is to be sexual and what maybe sex is um, and opening yourself to new sensations. And again, not all kink is about pain. So, you know, you know, pain obviously is a big piece of the, you know, re-traumatizing and finding a way out of that mirror maze that we discussed. But um, you know, body worship is a form of, of domination, um, you know, tickling, massaging. So anything that gets you to conceptualize more deeply of your own sexuality outside of traditional penetrative sex um, is, is healthy and, and should be explored and isn't, shouldn't be a source of shame. Everybody is so diverse. Everybody has a different way that they will need healing and everybody will have different things that work for them. I think as two therapists who are more than open to explore these different topics and to help people with their healing, um, and I would hope that most therapists um, don't really care how you present in therapy with what you need to talk about or what your healing is. I think more so the ultimate goal is that we want you to feel better, to be better, and to explore whatever it is that makes you feel like a healthy, happy person. You know, we do trauma retreats and I know that healing from sexual trauma is something that's definitely going to come up and it's definitely something we had planned on addressing. Um, what, what are your thoughts on incorporating these ideas of kink? So having a healing from sexual trauma specific retreat, I think would be fantastic. And we could certainly um, cover kink in that. I also think... Yeah, let us know if you want a specific retreat in terms of healing from sexual trauma. Sure. Also, if we were to just do a healing from trauma through kink, 
there are other areas of trauma that kink can be useful in healing. It's not just sexual. So anyone that has had their power of consent taken, their mobility taken, that's having their sexuality either uh, forcibly removed from their identity. So anyone that's had medical trauma, anyone with a disability that has rendered them you know, asexual in media's eyes, in the culture's eyes at large, um, people who uh, cannot achieve orgasm or cannot have traditional sex, you know, people who have had operations, people who've had hysterectomies, people who have had genital mutilation, people um, who struggle in any way, um, being able to heal from that trauma or heal and find ways of becoming sexual beings, of owning their sexuality in ways other than traditional sex would benefit um, you know, especially with medical trauma. Uh, medical trauma is a really unique form of trauma where uh, in many ways it has a lot in common with sexual trauma in the sense that your bodily autonomy is taken from you. Um, you're not really given the option of consent and you might even be told that it's your fault you're sick or, you know, being rewarded for allowing your body to not be your own, even if it's from people who are well-meaning. Um, so yeah, there's a, a lot of traumas that um, kink, if you think of it more as exploring empowerment through bodily autonomy, I think there's some huge overlap between kink and um, sexual autonomy being a method to healing. Yes, absolutely. And also that acknowledgement that sexual health, sexual pleasure, all that is important to the healing process. It should not be overlooked um, as part of like you redefining and, and, and developing these new identities of who you are. Like we can't neglect a piece and part of us. We have to, you know, redefine and, and identify all of who we are that makes us feel healthy and well and such. So I think those are definitely some things that um, exploring um, in a retreat environment allows us the opportunity to go a little bit more in depth than what we can do um, necessarily in a therapy room or in a session, but also it puts us in a different environment that allows us to assist you in tapping into who you are and what those needs are away from the rest of the world, which is a, a benefit of um, that sort of that isolated type of uh, intense experience that is involved in um, these types of retreat and the processes and the things that go on um, in these in these retreats that um, Bryn and I uh, put together. So with that, um, if you have any questions or if you'd like to leave a review, please leave us a review. We like the data. We like the reviews. We like to read them, good or bad. We don't care. It's all feedback, and feedback allows us to make each podcast better. And with that, um, thanks for joining us here on The Trauma Perspective.